If you follow me on Instagram or subscribe to my newsletter and show notes, then you know I've become, you know, a little obsessed with extreme sports and the athletes who compete in them. I've devoured books on ultra marathons. Finding Ultra by Rich Roll is my favorite so far. Navy SEAL training, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins is amazing. And I've sat breathless watching films about seemingly impossible and conceivable climbs. The movies Meru and Free Solo are not to be missed, and just the trailers will make your bowels tremble. Seriously. I can't explain this fascination, you guys. I'm not really into sports. Skiing is the only sport I've ever really enjoyed, and I've never been good at them. I have zero interest in ever attempting to climb even like a recreational wall or run even a quarter of a marathon. (laughs) I have zero interest in any of that for myself. But I think what intrigues me about these sports is that they live at the outermost edge of human ability. Extreme sports to me represent the nexus point of total flow and immersion in the present moment and engagement with the natural physical world and mastery over the mind. And when those three things come together, I am in, I am captivated. I want to see it. I want to know about it. And I want to know how a human being could possibly manage these feats of strength and endurance. I just can't get enough of it. And as such, I have always wanted to interview a coach who could explain to me how this all works. I wanted someone who could take me into the mindset of an athlete performing at their peak. And when a friend of mine told me about my guest today, Dr. Chris Heilman, I jumped at the opportunity to interview her. Dr. Chris is a coach, a speaker, an author, and an athlete who empowers people to go beyond what they think they are capable of to achieve peak levels of physical, mental, and lifestyle performance. Chris is a skier, climber, and endurance runner herself, so she gets it. She knows the mental game, not from the armchair, but from being in it. She has a PhD in sports and exercise psychology and a double board certification as an athletic trainer and a strength and conditioning coach, and she's been an athletic trainer to collegiate and Olympic athletes. Dr. Chris has written a book called Elevate Your Excellence, The Mindset and Methods That Make Champions. But she's also done cool stuff like worked as an outdoor educator in Joshua Tree or ski patrol at Grand Targhee and was a backpack guide for NOLS and other organizers in the Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, Tetons. And for over 20 years, she has helped hundreds of weekend warriors, youth sports participants, recreational, collegiate, and elite athletes skyrocket both their performance and personal excellence. But I wanted to ask her questions like, how important is meditation, really? Is it really critical at that level of performance? How do you get a runner to push past mile 45 in an ultra? How do you arrest a full-blown freakout that's happening to a climber who's just facing a terrifying obstacle? And here's the thing. I was nervous that she'd be one of those like super intense, intimidating people who might bark at me for being <laughs> such a voyeur into extreme sports, never having attempted any of them. But as you're about to see, Chris is the opposite of that. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Chris Heilman. If you had to think of like, what is the thing that holds people back from becoming the most that they can become? What is your assessment of that? Like, what is the thing that holds us back most? 
uh, your own fears, doubts, and limitations. Like we all look through rose-colored glasses and we all have a history. And so we all have stories playing in our head from whatever happened when you were a kid or adult or whatever that is. And so we, we have these models that we've like created for ourselves to keep us safe or whatever reason. And so just like recognizing those and then letting them go like, oh, this isn't serving me anymore. This used to serve me, but I think that's kind of BS and I I don't want that around anymore. When you ever get pushback from people who say, no, 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 Dr. Chris, you don't understand. The belief thing isn't the thing. I just can't run any harder or I can't go any further. Like, do you have to sometimes convince people that no, the way you think and the way your brain pumps messages into your head affects how far you can run? Like, do you have to convince people that thoughts really do matter physically? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I mean, there's skeptics, right? And I love the skeptics because they're a challenge for me versus like just nodding your head, like, "Uh uh-huh, whatever you say, Chris. So depending on the athlete or the situation, we'll do a different exercise. Give me an example. Like what's a story and you know, you probably have to do what I have to do, which is change identifying characteristics to not betray anybody's privacy. But give me a story of where you were able to help someone over like an insurmountable obstacle mentally that was holding them back from becoming what they could become. That happens all the time, but something that just happened yesterday, maybe it's not this huge obstacle, but answering the question that you did before, uh, I had an elite athlete, a professional athlete call me uh, yesterday and we just did this quick talk and he's like, oh, by the way, one of my friends who him and I and a few other people were presenting at this conference for elite climbers. He's a great trainer and he's like, he's a skeptic. He's from Ohio, hardworking Midwesterner. And he was like, what Chris does is kind of BS and I don't believe it. And it's this voodoo thing. And then he's like, this elite athlete is telling me. And then he said, you did this arm test and he was sold. He was like, oh my gosh, this works. Oh my gosh, what is this? What is the arm test? I was like, I had no idea. Thank you for sharing that story with me. And so another version of that, since we can't do this arm test, would be... Well, actually, Chris, describe the arm test because I think I know what you're talking about. But in case my listeners... Okay. I've actually done the arm test before and it is crazy. Did Adam Dorsey teach you? No, I went to some homeopathic healer person and she did it to me and it blew my brains out. So anyway, describe it. What happens is I just have people stand nice and tall and I have their arms not straight out in front of them or out to the side, but in the middle. So like at a 45 degree angle. And this is actually a rotator muscle strength testing. So I was also an athletic trainer. So this is called your super spinatus, just seeing if it's strong. And what you do is just have people stand up tall and then just gently press on their wrists and the person resists back to see just how much strength you have. So you just gradually just keep pushing a little harder for three or five seconds just to get a general idea of their muscle strength. And then what I have people do is close their eyes and think of something positive, something they like about themselves, something they get compliments on, you know, what's a quality or characteristic within themselves that it's just a gift to them. And then we do the tests and it's like, okay, they're nice and strong. Again, they might be even a little stronger. 
And so then the next one is something negative. What's something you don't like about yourself or what's something you're trying to break through, like a bad habit or inner quality and characteristics. So I have them close their eyes, think about it. And when they're ready, they nod their head. And then I muscle strength test them again on their wrists. And what happens is they lose strength. God, it's so crazy. When I was tested, I didn't know what the hell she was doing. I just was like going along with it. So I had no preconceptions and it blew my mind how much of my own power was literally physically not present when I was in that mental state of negativity or, or actually the way she tested me was she asked me a question that she knew wasn't true. And so that was the big aha for me in that moment is like, if we are living in a situation that we know is not good for us or that we are pretending to just get by, we physically pay for it, which, and that, that muscle strength test is amazing. And so when you do that, like, what do people see when you demonstrate that to them, Chris? Are they like, holy shit, my thoughts are actually physically holding me back. Is that the takeaway? Yeah, that's the exact takeaway. And and sometimes I do it in like big groups. And so they have partners and I just watch them and instruct them how to do it. And it's like, whoa, what just happened? And what happens is like your brain doesn't know the difference between real or imaginary. So your brain, your organ of your brain doesn't know the difference. And so when you are saying those negative thoughts, that's very threatening to your brain. And so you go into your brainstem and you go into fight or flight. And when we go into fight or flight, like where does our energy go? What's more important, our life or our limb? Yeah, yeah. Our life is more important. Like the organs, you know, we need our heart to beat, our lungs to move, things like that. And so our energy goes to our core. Wow. So then you lose your limb strength. And so when you're working with an athlete, let's say they've hit a wall or let's say whatever the case is, whatever problem is the thing that calls them to you, how do you start to overcome that? Because some of these things, like you say, they're not just thoughts, they are beliefs, which is just a thought repeated over and over again. But how do you get them out of that? And I think skeptics and rightly so are like, dude, I got a lot bigger problems than just positive thinking. You know, like how do you begin to rewire that? Well, first of all, like I got bigger things than just positive thinking. Like that's an interesting statement because I think if you're someone who's like trying to make a a bigger impact in the world, the biggest impact you can make is improving yourself and being the best version of yourself. So if you're having these negative thoughts, what is that doing to environment? So, you know, I'm a little bit of a hippie. So I think it's really interesting. (laughs) I like to hug trees, things like that. I find it really interesting that, you know, whether this is true or not, but isn't it interesting that, well, this part is true, the increase in autoimmune diseases and cancers and things like that are rising. So we're like, our bodies are full of inflammation. And so our bodies are heating up. And so isn't it interesting that also planet Earth is heating up? So if like you have these gut issues and all these other things, like the biggest thing that you can do is figure that out for yourself. Like what is causing those stressors? And so I forgot your question because I had a on that. (laughs) My question was, how do you start to rewire if somebody's got a proclivity for negativity? How do you get them out? I know what I try and do, but I feel like you in a sports metaphor, in a sports environment, it's even more acute because it's like they either perform better or they don't. How do you rewire their thinking away from negativity and self-doubt and into positivity and possibility? 
Yeah, well, it's about awareness. That's the number one tool is just becoming aware if this is helping or hurting you. So I don't think it's like positive or negative because the sports that I work with, which are skiers and climbers, and like there can be serious injury and even death involved with it. Sometimes those negative thoughts are there to protect your life. Like you should listen when the back of the hair stand up on on your neck. So it's not necessarily we have to be positive all the time because that negativity is also trying to help you learn and grow or keep you safe. And so what I like to say is just like, it's an awareness piece. So this happens to pop up and like, is this helpful or hurtful? Yeah. Even though it hurts, like it might be helpful. I might need to listen to what this story is trying to tell me because it keeps showing up. So I've labeled my like story of not being good enough as Bob. And Bob is big old bully. (laughs) Bob is a bully. Is that what you said? Big old bully. Oh, got it. I get it. Bob. So Bob comes to the door, right? And so sometimes I invite Bob in for tea because it's a guest and he's trying to, you know, he or she, I call them shim to be gender neutral. Oh my God, I love that. Shim is there. Bob is trying to help me like figure out something that I might be holding on to and I need to let go or whatever that is. And sometimes like in performance situations, like, you know, I did a 12 minute talk that was supposed to be a Ted-like talk. Like those things come up because I'm nervous, but I'm like, I slam the door in Bob's face. I'm like, I don't got time for your stuff right now. Like maybe later we can talk, but right now I don't have time for it. So it's just an awareness piece. And once you become aware of it, like I have with Bob, then you know, like whether it's appropriate to go down that rabbit hole or not. Oh, that is so, I love the Bob metaphor because what I think people have to realize at some point in their lives is that those thoughts are not reality necessarily. They are a story and we get to choose the best of it and discard the worst of it or just slam the door in the face of it. And I think when I'm working with clients, that is such a huge part of it. In fact, I just gave a talk recently and the audience was very, very poker faced. And usually I have, you know, two thirds of the audience is like, I can feel them. They are with me. But for whatever reason, this was an audience that was just very, very, very close to the best. And in my mind, as I mid speech and the speech I've given hundreds of times, it's my favorite thing to talk about mid speech while I'm in front of the room, my messages are like, they hate this. It's the wrong message for the wrong audience. You suck. Your family sucks. Your whole story sucks. Everything about you sucks, Bronwyn, and everybody's looking at you. And I remember taking a deep breath and being like, mm-hmm. all of that may actually be true, but right now I've got to do the best I can with what I have. And what I have is this message. So all I can do is deliver as much fidelity to my own philosophy process and message like I do every time and hope for the best. It's the best I can do. Thank you, next. And I sent that thought packing. And then afterwards, I found out that it was a huge success. This was just a group of people that were just very culturally more inward. And had I let Bob shit all over my talk, I would have had a complete anxiety attack in front of 75 people. So I think, Chris, like I love your process for externalizing negative thoughts, that it's a guest you can either choose to welcome and listen to, or if it's not appropriate, slam the door on. 
Good. Well, I hope that's a future thing that you and your listeners can use because I use it all the time and it's a really popular technique. Uh, I even have like an 11 year old little mountain athlete who's like writing a story about it and negative Nancy and positive and like this whole story about what happens with Bob. (laughs) That's amazing. And so if you're working with like, let's say climbers are fascinating to me. I just recently watched Free Solo. Have you seen that yet, Chris? Yes, I have. I I don't even have words to describe how amazing that film is. And I look at people like that and I think that is a guy who is able to keep his mental story so in check that he's able to scale that thing with no ropes, no nothing and get to the top and feel like a million bucks. As a coach doing what you do, when you watch that movie, what did you think about his mental state? Well, I don't know Alex Honnold personally, so I can't really like psychoanalyze him. Yeah. (laughs) I found really fascinating were his ability to separate his himself from his thoughts. So in Eastern tradition, that's called witnessing. So he was able to be like, oh, it's kind of like the Bob thing. Like, here's what's going on. And I just watch it. I watch the story and I, what I gathered, like, I really don't do anything about it. I just watch the story and it passes along like clouds. And so it was just like sport was this avenue, free climbing or free soloing actually was this avenue for him to be in a more like awakened state. Yes. Like flow, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like flow, upper levels of flow. Extraordinary. There was this moment where, and I can't remember who says it about Alex, but he says something like, if he attempts this climb and he's worrying about the next, I don't even know what the terminology is, Chris, you're a climber, so you know, but he's worried about the next pitch, the next thing. It's not going to work. He has to know Mm -hmm. it so well that he does the climb, no ropes, he free solos so he can show off how much he knows about the mountain. And until he gets to that point where the climb is almost like, I got this, you guys check this out. Look at this, look at that. And it's almost like until it becomes joy and that like little boy like version of climbing, it won't be successful. And in the end, that seemed to be what got him up the mountain was just like, he had it so dialed. He knew every pitch, like the back of his hand, he had a big smile on his face. It seemed like at certain points. Yeah, definitely. I don't know like his exact process, but yeah, he had it so dialed. But there's this fine line of like, there also needs to be like that joy and excitement. So if it's so dialed and so automatic, sometimes your concentration can actually become like bored. And so that's part of the flow research of just like, where is your skill and how does that match the challenge? Because if it's the challenge is too high for your skill, then you get really anxious about it. And that's not a good place to be. But if your skill is really high and the challenge is low or you've done it too many times, then your mind is able to like think about other things because you've done it too many times. So you kind of find that sweet spot, probably the same thing of like, preparing for a talk. You're like, okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. But I can't like overdo it or else it's like, there's no life in it anymore. That's exactly right. So one of the things that I love that you said when we were talking earlier 
was joy drives excellence. I love that line. I love that idea. Tell us what that means. Like, you know, for people listening to this that aren't preparing for the Olympics or aren't trying to train for an ultra marathon or something, how do we take the idea that joy drives excellence and apply it to our lives? Yeah. Well, using the example of Alex, I mean, he didn't free solo because he was going to get a paycheck or go on Jimmy Fallon or something like that. You know, it wasn't these external goals. It was because he loved climbing. He just lived and breathed and just loved climbing and what he, what it had done for him. And so just like, we're only here on this planet for an eye blink of a moment. And like, what do you want to do with that time? Right. And so what is it that brings you joy? And it doesn't have to be your vocation. It doesn't have to be your job. But what is it that really brings you joy and fills you up? Because that's really what's going to create that excellence within you. I agree. It makes us feel alive, right? Mm -hmm. Remind a lot of people don't prioritize joy, that they don't make time for joy. I mean, for a lot of people, finding joy sounds like a luxury item. But they'll, you know, but they'll fire up Netflix and watch six hours of whatever. (laughs) What do you make of that dichotomy? Oh, yeah, I think it's a story, right? Like, get your head out of the clouds, kid. You know, like all these stories that we've told ourselves, like you need to work hard to be successful. Da, 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 da. You know, and so I think it's just a story that like, what do you mean I can have joy and still be successful and excel and I don't have to put in as much effort? And so I think it's a story that you tell yourself. And once you start like connecting with things that make you joyful, and I've been doing this the last like six months, like things show up and you're like, how did that happen? Like I'm taking off a lot of time with work right now and all these little things are showing up for me. And I'm like, because I have the time and space and energy to see it and be with it and know that that's something that actually makes me happy. It's so true. It's like, we think it's a rise and grind thing, but I find too, the more I prioritize joy, the more my life expands. In fact, my whole business, I literally, for the past, I don't know, 12 years, my North Star for my entire practice is what brings me joy and what doesn't. And anything that's, whatever ceases to be in the joy category, I eventually phase it out. And it's painful sometimes because sometimes things that are lucrative don't bring me joy. It's painful to slowly have to let that go and replace that income somewhere else. But I have noticed for myself, I can be at the top of my game, at the top of my category, only if I am joy powered. If I do it for the money or for the prestige or for the ego, Mm. I'm not as good. I'm just yet another person, you know, yammering on about something. So I am such a huge Huge fan of that. Can I pause right there? So I think for your audience, an easy question that you can ask yourself versus joy, if that kind of feels, you know, like, oh, whatever, I don't deserve joy or whatever that is. If you're making a decision, it could be, is this light or is this heavy? Yes. And if it feels heavy, then why are you doing it? Or can you change it in a way that feels lighter? Oh my God, you just... Totally. There's an opportunity that came across my, my world. And I just instantly thought about that evaluation. It's super crystal clear whether or not I should take it on. That's amazing. Does it feel light or heavy? And this is the other thing. In fact, Chris, I'm trying to teach my children this. 
is we don't allow, I think in our culture, we deprioritize intuition mm-hmm. and feeling as a means of decision-making. And one of the things I'm trying to teach my kids is no, 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 no. Logic has a super important place in it, of course, but you've got to train yourself to notice when something feels heavy versus something feels light, because I swear to God, haven't you found that whenever you've done something, despite it feeling heavy, it always goes south. It always blows up. (laughs) Yeah. Most of the time. (laughs) I think Martha Beck calls it shackles on or shackles off. Like Uh what French feel like shackles on or shackles off. It's such an important way to make decisions. And I don't think it gets enough respect, you know, and that's what's trippy about what you do. Because I feel like if I say something as a communication coach, somebody might be like, okay, well, we'll see. I'll try it. But when a sports psychologist, when a, somebody who trains elite athletes says it, people are like, Oh, well, if it works for Tiger Woods, it must work for me. You know what I mean? Like you feel like you get extra points because you're working with athletes for that stuff. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, I do. And what's really also awesome is that I will tell that 11, 12, 13, 14 year old, you know, young athlete, I'm like, this is the same stuff I talk about with my 35 year old professional athlete. We talk about a lot of the same stuff. The reason is, is like I've taken these topics and really like deduce them down into like fun, simple, sticky ways of remembering. And so um, just helping them through that process. Speaking of fun, sticky concepts, can you tell us about ACE? Yes, I can tell you about ACE. So ACE is this this concept that I came up of called ACE Your Performance. And each of the ACE letters stands for something. So A is attitude, C is concentration, and E is enjoyment. And so before going into competition or practice or whatever it is, like you check in with your attitude, right? And so that was part of that arm test that I'll do. Um, Part of that ACE is attitude and do that arm test just to like hone in that point of like, this stuff is important. Like, how are you approaching it? What's your intention? You know, because your attitude determines your altitude is a little adage. Your attitude determines your altitude. Yes, girl. I like that. Yeah. And so your self-talk is wired to your brain. And so just checking in with that, like, where am I at today? And if you're not into it, like, do you want to force yourself or do you need to go for a walk or what is it that you need in order to like get into that just lighter, positive headspace? And that can be hard. Sometimes you just want to grind. Like I wrote a book and I'm like, no, I'm grinding. I, you know, my whole mantra was enjoy the journey. I actually didn't enjoy a lot of it. (laughs) But then I found out like, you know, someone asked me to write a book about climbing. I'm like, no, I don't like writing books. (laughs) It feels heavy, but I did it. I tried it. But there were days that, you know, when I really did listen, it was like, no, I need to go for a walk. And then I'd come in and I would just pump out some words because I was listening to what I needed. Mm, interesting. Mm-hmm. And so with the attitude too, another really popular exercise is setting a timer. So I will set like a one minute timer to wallow. And so just oh set God. a timer That's for one minute. 
<laughs> well, because it, the negativity is a slippery slope. You know, you can just be crabby all day for one simple thing. And so put a timer on. And especially with endurance athletes, this works really well because they're going for long runs and they're like, my knee hurts. And so just complain, just let it out. Just like come up with as many things that you can complain about for one minute. And then after that minute, decide what you want to do. I want another minute to complain or I want to go for, you know, a jog or I'm actually focused to start working again. And so it's not that one minute you have to be okay, but it's just like, I'm giving myself a minute to see what comes up. Wow. I love that. I love that because you're right. Negativity and and grouchiness and complaining and kvetching can become the wallpaper in the room if you let it. You know what I mean? So by allowing a little timer to wallow, I Love that. Or just to catastrophize and write down every terrifying thought. In fact, I did that the other day. I was really afraid of a conversation I needed to have with someone very close to me. I was very afraid about the conversation. And so I wrote down all of my fears about it and they were insane. Like it was when I wrote it down in black and white, I was like, you're a crazy person. Like only a crazy person would be afraid of this. And so once I saw it written down, I was able to be like, okay, well, it's not that bad. Like it can't possibly be that bad. It calmed me down. But too often we just let the shit rumble around, be the wallpaper and it colors our version of reality. So I love the wallow. I love the wallow. What about concentration? Yeah. So concentration, there's a few layers to that, but concentration goes into like wherever your focus goes, everything else follows. Mm. So if you think about like riding a bike and you see like a rock in the middle of the road and you're like, okay, you're looking at the rock. You're like, okay, don't hit that rock. Don't hit that rock. Don't hit that rock. Boom, boom. So because you <laughs> you're you're looking right at it i mean as a skier or an athlete it's like well what do you look at do you look at the trees or where you want to actually ski you look at where you want to ski or else you're going to hit a tree <laughs> and so even having that conversation potentially with your friend or whoever it was writing that down is like well i'm looking at how all this could potentially go wrong and so naturally, that's what's going to happen because you've put all your attention and focus and concentration on that. It's like, it's like that exercise, like whatever you do, don't think of the pink elephant. Yes. Don't you do it. Don't think of the pink elephant. And then that's all you can think of. Yeah, because you're wiring your brain to think about a pink elephant. Like, so for example, when you have an unpleasant task, but the task needs to be done, like say paying your taxes or doing your bills or those are the tasks I hate. Or if you're working with somebody who's, let's say, training for an ultra marathon or something, sometimes the task sucks. It's not enjoyable. It's mile 47 or it's, you know, whatever it is. How do you create concentration when you don't want to effing be there? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, what I typically do is external rewards for those types of things. <laughs> more about yeah. that. So maybe it's creating a new habit. And like for me, I put a sticker on the calendar for doing it because like I think about my childhood and I remember getting stickers in third grade for my multiplication charts. And I'm like, it's just something simple and easy, but I love putting a sticker on the wall. <laughs> It's so funny that you say that because Liz Gilbert was just speaking, I think it was at the Goop conference. She carries gold stars with her. And so the reason she does it is that she, like so many of us women, are constantly grinding ourselves away for not doing enough every day. And so instead of thinking of how much she wasn't doing, she just gold stickers herself for like, girl, 
you arrested that negative thought in its tracks. Boom, you get a gold sticker. She was handing them out to everybody. It was the cutest thing. And I loved it. I was like, oh my God, I love stickers. Uh, that's funny. I don't know Elizabeth Gilbert, but I have a client who's really close to her and he's like, that's what Elizabeth Gilbert says. I'm like, really? I, I don't know. Okay. We're on the same page then. I need to get to know this lady. <laughs> she's like one of those people who she's one of my best friends. She just doesn't know it yet. Like it's, yeah. uh, <laughs> exactly. I should reach out to her. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I love that. But what other external, like, so for example, that is an example of some fun little sparkly, like no big deal thing. What about when you're in it? Like what if you're running and you run out of your, you run out of your natural motivation and you're realizing at mile 47, Oh yeah, I hate running 20 miles ago. I loved running. Now I hate running. Like what do you do then? Well, there's lots of things that you can do. One, it's your perception, right? So it's like, it's probably pretty normal that I'm hating running at mile 47 right now. You know, if I'm doing a 50 miler, that might be pretty normal. Like I'd be actually kind of shocked if I was still enjoying it. Is that kind of normal? Like finishing a book, like, oh my gosh, I want to poke my eyeballs out, right? Or preparing for a talk. Like, well, this is kind of normal. I'm tired. I'm not as fresh as I was, but this is where I grow. Like, what do I want to do with this? Do I want to see this as a threat? And like, oh, poor me, I suck, you know, all that negative self-talk that you start going down? Or is it like an opportunity for you to grow? Is it a challenge? Like, okay, let's see what I can do with these last three miles. And I actually did that in a trail marathon race. And it was like the last three miles. I'm like, sweet, I have 30 minutes. I wonder if I can do this in three, my my last three miles in under 30 minutes. And I did. So it became this challenge of like, I know I'm really tired and this really hurts, but let's see what I can do. Let's see what I'm made of. That's amazing. That's amazing. So that question, what can I do with this is a great one to ask when concentration is flagging or you're kind of like at the end of what you've got to give. What about the enjoyment part? So ACE is attitude, concentration, and enjoyment. And why is there a reason why those are in the order they're in? They're not in a specific order besides like it's easy to remember. Honestly, it's like it spells ace. This is great. I like the way this is. And I think it also does just naturally like where is my attitude? Where is my headspace? Then what do I want to do with my headspace? Now, how can I put a smile on my face? Like how how is this filling my cup up? Um, What is it that got me started in running or speaking or writing or whatever, whatever that passion is for you? Like going back to the beginning and like, why was this so fun? Was it because I got to hang out with friends? Was it because I got to explore the depths and limits of who I was because it was challenging? Or maybe I discovered strengths I didn't know I had. And so going back to some of those things of like, oh yeah, why does this make me tick? Yeah, yeah. And even going back to the pain, just I just had a thought with the concentration going back to the pain, you know, it can be like, I just really like to be outside. Yeah. And I like hearing the birds. And so instead of internalizing this pain that you're having, it's like, and what I say is lose your mind and come to your senses. Ooh, God, I love that. Lose your mind and come to your senses. What does that mean? So it means like you're telling a story to yourself, like your mind is like telling this thing for yourself, you know, in a safe situation and like 
come to your senses, use your eyesight. What do you see around you? What's beautiful? What are you grateful for? Like, what are you feeling underneath your feet or on your skin? Or maybe it's the wind blowing across your face. Uh, What are you smelling? What are you tasting? What are you hearing? To get out of this headspace, like go into your senses. What is your body feeling and telling you? That is so beautiful. I love, in fact, I was walking my dog. Um, we're in Tahoe right now and there's this trail sort of behind the development that we're in and it's beautiful. And you forget that there's houses around because it's just so beautiful. And I took him for a walk at dusk, which is my favorite time because there's no golfers out. There's hardly any people. Everybody's kind of making dinner or whatever. And I got like three quarters of the way into the walk before I realized that I hadn't seen one single tree. I hadn't heard a bird. I hadn't felt one step because I was in my head. And it wasn't like I was thinking anything negative necessarily. I was just spinning. It was like a whirling dervish. And finally, three quarters of the way through the walk, I did this five, four, three meditation that mm-hmm. I love. It was like, what are five things I see? What are five things I hear? What are five things I feel? And then you go to four things. See, and it is that little meditation brings you deeper, deeper, deeper into the moment. And it gives your mind a chew toy, which is like, what are the five things? Well, what are the four things? And finally, like by the end of the walk, I was like, oh God, I finally just got here. And now the walk is over. (laughs) But like our minds are so powerful, but they're like puppies. If you don't give them an appropriate chew toy, they will tear your goddamn house apart. (laughs) Right? I actually use that analogy with some athletes. Like, you know, your dog, what happens if you don't train it and it loves that squirrel? Right. Like it's over. So I love that. Five things that you're feeling. What were those? Five things you see. Five things you feel like tactile and five things you hear. Mm. And it's hard. Like five is a lot of things, especially tactile. If you're just walking, you might just feel, I don't know, sweat on my arm or whatever, but then you get through that. And now you have to find four things you see, four things you feel, four things you hear. And then you go down to three. And my therapist taught me this because I was asking him like, you know, the good news, bad news about my job. And I'm sure you're in the same position sometimes is I get so excited and I get so full of ideas and I feel like my head is going to pop right off my shoulders. (laughs) And then I get tired. I'm like a toddler that runs really hard and then falls over, you know? Yeah, totally. Like, oh my God, Jeb, how do I regulate? This is gnarly. And he said, five, four, three, go for a walk. And so when I get into that like manic, oh my God, there's so much I want to do and I can't do it. I just walk out the door. I do five, four, three. And then I come back to my senses, as you say, but it's it's great for anyone trying to come back to the present moment. And so let me ask you this, any tricks that you have for coming back to the present moment once you've been hijacked by Bob? Like, let's say you accidentally invited Bob in, you really didn't have time, but here he is. You got to kick him out. How do you bring your clients back to the present moment? I think the quickest way is doing a deep breath. You, You know, you don't need anything. You don't have to go out the door, you know, whatever that is. It's like breathing is so simple, but yet so profound. And so typically when we, Bob shows up, we breathe just shallow. We breathe into our chest. And when we're relaxed and calm, we're like using our whole lung capacity to breathe. And so just taking that breath. And so I'll teach a lot of breath work to just help like, oh, right. I'm just like 
connecting back into like what's going on. And so the breath is, is something called like muscle to mind and mind to muscle. So the quick thing is like using that breath. And then I usually have a cue word or a physical cue to go with that. And so I've done like a lot of progressive muscle relaxation. So I'll take a breath and say my word, which is tranquility and my shoulders will drop. Like everything will just kind of calm down as long as I'm not like so over aroused that it's like, is the earth shaking? Is it just me? (laughs) Like then I've ignored it. And it's actually called catastrophe theory where it's like, okay, I'm starting to feel anxious or nervous or over aroused. And I'm just going to ignore it because it's fine. That I just like, I ignore it, I ignore it. And then you walk up this cliff and then eventually the, or this hill. And then eventually the hill has a cliff that you fall off and it's too steep for you to come back. That cliff falling is caused by ignoring and and repressing the anxiety? Yes. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And so like when you can catch it early and like, oh, okay. Oh, I notice it's starting to come up. All right. Then I'll use that breath or some other technique that I can go into in a bit. But if I'm further along that trail and up that hill, then it doesn't work. I've tried it climbing when I was really sketched out and I was like, this didn't work. Huh? <laughs> um, and I was just like, oh, isn't that really funny? So I try to keep things lighthearted. But a really popular exercise, if you had more time, is a mind a muscle. So when your mind is calm, your body is calm. It's connected. Like when your body is calm, your mind is more calm. Interesting. And so a lot of times it just depends what's going on. Like, do you feel that level of buzz in your head or in your body? Oh, If it's in your body, then use that breath and connect with that breath and connect with those senses. If a lot of it is like, and asking those questions, like the five, four, three, if it's in your head, I do what's really popular is what's called square breathing. Oh yes. I love square breathing. Tell everybody about square breathing. Yes. So this just gives your mind something to focus on. And so what I have people do is just sit comfortably in a chair with your feet flat on the floor. And just gently close your eyes. So if you're driving, don't do this. (laughs) If you're walking, you may just like pause. You can stand up um, and then just get centered. Make sure that your feet are have equal weight on them. If you're sitting, your seat bones have equal weight and your spine. Each vertebrae is stacked on one on top of each other. So your spine is nice and long. Your head is equally balanced on your shoulders, and you can go ahead and roll your shoulders up and down your back. And just notice your breathing. Don't change anything, but just notice your breath. Now I want you to shift your attention to imagining a square in your mind's eye. It can be a big square, a small square, or any color that you want. Now notice all four sides of the square, as well as each of the four corners. What we're going to do is breathe around the square, pausing at each of the corners. So bring your attention to the top left-hand corner. And on the next inhale, you're going to breathe down the left-hand side, Pause at the corner, exhale across the bottom, 
pause, inhale up the right, pause, exhale across the top, pause. Again, inhale down the left, just a gentle pause at the corner and exhale across the bottom, pause, inhale up the right, pause, exhale across the top, pause. And then to help calm that arousal level that may have been raised, what we can do is change this square into a rectangle. And so do the exhale a little bit longer because on the exhale, you ignite your parasympathetic nervous system. So that's your rest and digest. And so that's really what helps calm you down. So start at the right or top left-hand corner and begin to inhale down the left. Pause, exhale across the bottom. Pause, inhale up the right. Pause, exhale across the top. Pause, you can inhale for four. Pause and exhale across the bottom for four to eight seconds. Pause, inhale up the right. Pause and exhale. And when you're complete, you can gently open your eyes, resume, maybe a crappy posture. I don't know. <laughs> no, <I'm> just, <laughs> that's my posture typically. So <laughs> go back to feeling like that. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And I can already feel the shift in my own energy after doing something like that. And one of my friends who's just a blessing on this planet named Ben Kiker, who's also a performance coach, he, whenever I get really spun up or rattled, he's always like, Bronwyn, find stillness in your day. And that little exercise took, I don't know, a couple minutes. And I feel like I just had a nap. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It really does replenish. How often should we be doing that during the day? Is it like every hour? Is it every second? Like, what do you tell people? I just ask them, when can you fit this in your day? Because everyone's different, right? And so it's like, I want to do this before I go to bed or before I brush my teeth. So usually try to link it to a habit you already have. Typically, I do mine in the bathroom. <laughs> Oh my God, I love that. <laughs> because it's a quiet place. Nobody knows what I'm doing. It's just a friendly reminder, like checking in with myself. Where am I? And then it's first just getting people connected it with a different habit and then realizing the benefits that it has. Like, oh, I actually really like doing this. Oh, you know what? I just noticed that I'm getting a rise. You know, I'm getting anxious or the buzz in my body is like, is the earth shaking or is it me? Like I said before, and I need to just take one square breath. It's going to take one. Yeah. And even if one square breath has such an impact on our physiology, which then we either are, you know, when we are in fire flight or freeze, our brains just don't function because they've got bigger fish to fry. They got to, you know, fend off the saber toothed tiger, which is actually just an email or something. So when we can <laughs> calm 
brown, we get so much more access to the thinking part of our brain that can empathize and strategize and all that stuff. But do you find, because I find with clients when they're like, what do I do when X and Y and Z and it's scary and da da da? And the first thing I say is breathe. And they're like, I want my fucking money back. Like, you know, like, what can't possibly be the answer? And I'm like, well, it's part A of the answer. It may not be B and C and D, but it's where things begin. And it really just is that important, right? Yeah, it is that important. And it doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to be like hooked up to electrodes and do some neuromuscular feedback or something. Yeah, <laughs> you don't yeah. have to have all that. I think the best things in life are really simple. I think that. Yeah, just that that simple breath. And yeah, you start there. You just start there. It's like, well, great. I want to run a marathon, you know, but you can't run a marathon tomorrow. Yeah, you know, yeah. You have to train a little bit. And so that's why I don't really recommend like, you know, you should be doing this amount at this time, you know, within the research, there's some suggestions, you know, like after three hours of meditating, like there's really a lot of physiological changes that happen, not in one sitting, but accumulative. And so it's like, let's start with one minute and then see what you do. So another question I'll ask clients is like, okay, this works for you. You want to do it. You're psyched about it. Like, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being fully confident that you're going to do it when you said you're going to do it. And one being not confident at all. Where are you at on that scale? Mm-hmm. And cause everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do that. That's cool. Like in the moment, but then really it's like, Hmm. How's and if they're at a seven, then I'm like, Oh, then we need to change this. And if they're at a seven, like how can we make you to an eight? That's amazing. So for you is meditation or some mindfulness practice, is it a requirement for peak performance? I think there's different types of meditation. And I think, I think yes, (laughs) from my personal experience and working with the clients that I have. But I think in certain sports, like you get into a meditative flow state. That's what you like about it. It's kind of a spiritual experience for like, optimal peak performance, not a PR, but like when you're exerting effort, but it feels effortless when the time just goes by and you're like, what just happened in those types of states? Yeah. You're in a meditative state. Amazing. I love that. The athletes I work with, they'll be like, oh, meditation, blah, blah, blah. I hate this. Because you have to sit with yourself. <laughs> it's hard. Exactly. It doesn't look like a lot is happening, but a lot is happening. And then eventually they start and they're like, you know, I've heard them on podcasts like, oh, meditation, I'm trying. And then later on, a few years later, it's like, oh, yeah, I meditate. Like, no big deal. <laughs> I don't care yeah, if people are yeah. judging them because like, they've got the benefits of it. Well, actually, that's a good thing for people listening who are like, I keep meaning to have a meditation practice, but somehow it doesn't happen, is to remind us that it starts off feeling like it's not doing anything. And that's normal. That's natural. That's part of the deal. Be patient because eventually you start reaping massive life-changing benefits from it. Don't you think that's a fair statement? Yeah, that's a very fair statement. Yeah. I think it's just like anything. Like if you started a business, there's all these things that just take so much of your time. And then eventually things become automatic. Like for you doing your very first big speech, it's like, oh my gosh, that takes so much preparation and work. And now it's like, I've done this a hundred times. I love this. Like, And so it's just with any new thing that you're creating, it's going to take some time and some effort. You know, we've talked about positive thinking and all those things, but yeah, there is is some effort that's going 
going to come and it's going to be uncomfortable, but it doesn't have to be, you don't have to suffer. It yeah. Uncomfortable without suffering. I think that is so true. And I think some of the stuff that people are so afraid to confront, like their own minds during meditation, or I don't want to write down my fears because once I see how crazy I am, I'll really know that I'm for sure real crazy. <laughs> All of the things that we avoid because we're afraid of the pain of it, it actually creates more suffering to avoid it. Yeah, and then you're not performing and then you're not, you know, trying to be your best self because all that stuff, that baggage is heavy. Like it's your choice to carry that burden with you. And if you didn't have to carry that anymore, like, oh my gosh, what could you do? That's if exactly you stop playing small. <laughs> That's exactly, exactly right. What could you do if you stopped playing small? It's a great question. In fact, every single person listening to this, I want you to finish up this episode and I want you to ask yourself out loud, what could I do if I decided to stop playing small? That's pretty genius. In fact, Chris, I think we should end on that. I can't think of a better way to end. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll just add one little thing. Like, and then what could I do if I played big? Ooh, what could I do if I played big? I love that. I love that. And then when Bob comes in, because Bob can hear the plans are happening, what do you do then? Yeah. Well, okay. So naturally Bob's going to come in because you're going to play big and you've been playing small, right? And so whenever you're at your growth edge, like that same story, Bob is going to come up. Every growth edge that I've had, it's like, oh, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not skinny enough. You're not whatever. You're not freaking enough. Anytime I've grown, right? And so now I know out of habit, like that story is going to come. So every time I try to step into this bigger you know, realm of myself, like Bob's going to come. And so it's your choice what you want to do with it, but just recognize who Bob is. And then I was talking about, I have this like triple A saying that I have as well. If Bob is like, okay, like what's going on? And the first A is acknowledge. So acknowledge what's going on. So I am experiencing X. So Bob is there, you know, and Bob's like, okay, what's going on, Bob? I am experiencing X. You fill in the blank, nervous, scared, frightened, you know, lazy, whatever it is. And then the next A is acceptance, accept. It's okay to experience fear. It's okay. It's you're forgiving yourself. It is okay. We all experience this. Like, Every top performer experiences this. They're not immune to any of this stuff. And then the next A is action. I choose to do what? I choose to wallow for that one minute. I choose to write for a minute, like how am I playing small and how how can I play big? I choose to do the square breathing. I choose to go for a walk. I choose to do the five, four, three. I love that. I'm going to close this by saying thank you for sharing this with us because most of us don't ever get to work with an elite athletic (laughs) sports psychology coach. So I love that anyone who's listening to this has access to your brain and your tools. And thank you, thank you, thank you. And is there anything else you want to say before we sign off? Mm, Can I tell you a joke? Oh, I love jokes, please. Okay. So there was this guy in the waiting room to see his therapist and he noticed this other guy walking in and he was all grumpy and he walked in really slow his shoulders were slumped over you know just like 
He was not having a good day. And like a little cloud was above him. And so he goes to his therapist door and he like knocks really slowly. And the therapist opens the door and he's in there for like five minutes and they open the door and the guy's standing up straight. He has a smile on his face and he's just like, thanks doc. And he's like, the therapist is like, yeah, no problem. And he's like, remember rule number six, like got it doc rule number six. Then there was this lady who walked in and she was all frazzled, like her hair was all over, you know, she's looking around everywhere. She walks really fast and then knocks on the therapist door really fast. He opens the door. She's in there for like three minutes and she walks out, you know, she's smiling, giggling, you know, just like has a pep in her step this time. And she's like, thanks, doc. And he's like, yep. Remember rule number six. She's like, I got it. Got it. Thank you. And this guy sitting in the chair waiting for his therapist, like, um, excuse me, doc. He's like, yeah. He's like, I've been in therapy for hours and I don't really leave my sessions like within a minute with a smile on their face. And I'm so curious, what is rule number six? Ah, rule number six. Don't take yourself so damn seriously. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah, life is a game. Like, have fun with it. Find the joy. It gets heavy. I know. Like, we're all walking uphill. But, like, how can you, like, have a smile while you're doing that? How can we stop taking ourselves so damn seriously? I agree. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. You're the best. And I just appreciate you taking the time with us. Thank you, honey. Thank you. I've had so much fun. I appreciate it. I love it. Well, enjoy your day. Thanks, you too. Bye.